years on waiting on God. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26 read, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, the soul that seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Problem is, that doesn't work for me. Because I'm an impatient person. I don't like to wait. I was enormously irritated last week when I had to wait 90 seconds for my fries in the McDonald's drive-thru. Because our society has taught us that instantaneous gratification is the norm. It used to be television was a scheduled event. 7 p.m. Tuesday night was your entertainment for that week. Now, wherever you are, whenever you are, whatever device you carry, you can get it instantly. There's instant coffee, instant microwave popcorn, books like 30 Minutes to a New You, the express line in the grocery store where you count the number of items in the cart and the person in front of you. 30 minutes for a pizza to be delivered to your door or it's free. UPS, one day, two day, three day service. Amazon makes a killing with Prime with this promise that whatever you buy, it could be there the same day. Or the old adage of FedEx that everything is absolutely guaranteed overnight. It makes us busy. Busy, 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 busy. And Corey Ten Boom put it this way, the devil cannot make you sin, but the devil can make you busy. Evelyn Underhill wrote, we live our lives conjugating the verb to do, when instead we should be living the word to be. We're an impatient race. Maybe it's called a race for a reason. And we have become a people that have lost the ability to wait. So that begs the question, which I'll put up here on a board because I have a board I can play with. What are you waiting for? It's a big question. The thing about language is you can change the meaning of the sentence by emphasizing different words. So what are you waiting for? you waiting for? Or what are you waiting for? And that's how I want to explore this. Now, granted, the editors in the room are saying it should be for what are you waiting? But we're going to relax that for a moment. But what are you waiting for? The first is the verb, waiting. This is the acute sort of waiting, 
Not the trivial stuff I was talking about in the opening. Not the idea of popcorn or pizza. But the acute sort of waiting that you find in a childless couple. Or someone who is waiting due to chronic pain. Or those who are emotionally scarred, waiting for peace. Or for those who are in a dead-end career and waiting for something new. Or the acute waiting of being lonely and wishing to find a place to belong. There are acute examples of waiting in Scripture. We forget that Noah waited for seven days after the ark was built. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been, I've been given a directive by God to build some strange device. And the entire city thinks I'm an idiot. My friends think I'm weird. I build the thing and then I, okay, it's done. Did you not get the memo? And you wait one day, then two, then three, and the noise around you gets louder and louder and louder. Of see, we told you. You are a failure in life. And you start to believe it. But on the seventh day, the rain came. Joseph waited two years in a dungeon, waiting to be remembered. Sarah waited in barrenness for 90 years. Jacob waited seven years for Rachel's hand. And Jonah sat in stomach juices, being slowly digested in the dark for three days. The first day, it's kind of smelly. The second day, you're kind of wondering. And the third day, you know it's over. And then Anna, in Luke chapter 2, waited 84 years for the Christ child. So many years ago, when my dad was still alive, he called me one day and said, well, your great uncle um, just passed away. He was 96 years old. Now, I didn't know my great uncle. I knew him by name. I may have met him once when I was a little tyke. So it really didn't mean too much to me. It meant something to my dad. Because uh, I think my dad's middle name is after him. And it was later when I thought about it. Because I was 29 years old at the time. Uh, my great uncle died and he was 96. Which meant he retired before I was born. My entire existence... He had enjoyed the fruits of retirement. And here I was pressing and pushing and wanting more because I wanted to succeed. I was driven for the next thing. And I wanted it now. And that was a big, big lesson for me to step back and go, well, let me let me rethink this. 
So I didn't really learn the lesson very well at that moment, because about four years later, um, I was very gainfully employed. Um, I'd been offered the vice presidency of a company and all sorts of things were going on, but I, there was something stirring and I kept praying, Lord, give me a word for my future. Give me a word. I need a word. And the word was, you're fired. <laughs> so a company where I was on the rise, where I had been offered very high-level positions, suddenly decided I was no longer wanted. I lost a battle. I didn't know I was fighting. Now that's a word you don't really want to hear, but God was in it. Of course, I didn't think it was at the time, but that's another story for all of us. But I did realize that God wanted me to have a life as one of waiting. Because I spent the next nine months waiting for another job with a young family in tow and watching our finances dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. You see, I'm in a hurry, but God is not. So that's the first, the subject. I'm sorry, the verb. Now we go to the subject. What are you waiting for? I call this the futility of self-reliance. You see, the basic problem with waiting is that we lose control during the waiting period. We can't affect the outcome, or if we try, it never quite works the way we want it. So we keep pressing and keep grabbing the wheel and you know God's in the driver's seat and he's slapping our hand away. So would you stop? Let me drive. No, you, you need to go this way, God. You see, we resist the idea of placing our lives in God's hands. And I'll tell you, theoretically, we will say, oh, we don't. I trust God and everything. Really? When it comes down to it, when we get to that point of frustration, do we truly step back and say, Lord, it's in your hands, except for what I have in my hands? We seem to make it our business sometimes to attempt to fill that, the quiet between events so that we aren't just sitting and waiting, but we're actually doing something. And we have a problem. <laughs> this came up last week. There's a new TikTok trend. It's sweeping TikTok. It's called silent walking. It's where you take your phone and you put it down and you leave the house and you go for a walk. <laughs> Whoa. You leave your headphones in the house and they actually have to give it a name. It's called silent walking. And of course, those of us from a generation are going, um, oh, that's just weird. But to read the testimonies, oh, 
It's so incredible. This is the widening of space, and oh my goodness, the sun and the birds. Anyway. <laughs> because we can't wait quietly. I think it's grounded in a fear of finding an existential loneliness draging beneath the surface. That we're afraid that we might find something we don't like. Now as a uh, self-professed workaholic, um, work and being busy is a very dangerous addiction. It can overwhelm, it can give you purpose per se. I once put it this way, I said, if the email doesn't ding or the phone doesn't ring, the encroaching silent whispers defeat in my ear. But the hardest lesson of all is to learn that in the element of waiting, as the individual, the subject of this, it's not about you. It shouldn't be. This is illustrated by Charles Spurgeon in his sermon from February 13, 1859, a mere 171 years ago. I'm just going to quote from him. So imagine Charles Spurgeon preaching this one Sunday morning. Say now, who is there among you who has not some image to break? I've thought sometimes that I had broken all of mine in one season, for I've had the will to do it. But lo, I have walked through the temple of my heart, and I have seen in some dark corner an idol still standing. Let it be cast down. I have said, and I have used the sledgehammer upon it. But when I thought I had cleared it all away, there was still one gigantic figure standing there. For you may be sure that there is one idol of which we can never thoroughly cleanse our hearts, though we try and though by God's strength we give him a blow every day. It is the God of pride. He changes his shape continually. Sometimes he calls himself humility. And we begin to bow before him until we find that we're proud of our humility. And at other times he assumes the fashion of conscientiousness. And we begin to carp at this and cavil at that. And all the while we're tampering with our own professed sanctity and are bowing before the shrine of religious pride. We think sometimes we're praising God when we are praising ourselves. And we pray at times that God may prosper us in doing good. And our greatest desire is to be honored, not that His name be glorified. This idol must be cast down. But it is of such a shape and a form that I suppose it will fare a bit like Dagon. Just a side note, Dagon is the Philistine idol in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 2 to 7. 
When the ark was brought into the house, it is said that Dagon fell into, onto his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and his head and the palms of his hands were cut off. Nevertheless, the stump of Dagon remained. And so it will be with us. I fear the stump of Dagon will remain. Do what we may. Let each of us today go home to our closet and begin to open the door of the chambers of our hearts and walk through them all and say, what have I to break? What have I to knock down? What have I to destroy? And let us be very careful that we do destroy all that we can get near. Oh, my hearers, how I wish we were more watchful. The only thing that keeps me in balance is a reminder of my need for humility. Now, you remember I said earlier that I was fired very uh, unceremoniously. And at the time, I was on the um, advisory board for Fuller Theological Seminary here in town. And one of the advantages of being on the board is we could take any of the extension courses here in the city on our own without pay. We didn't have to pay for them. We just audit as long as we didn't, you know, um, make ourselves annoying to the teacher. And so I thought, ah, I would love to sit in the Fuller Seminary class on Jeremiah. <laughs> and so I go to the first class, it's a night class, and the room is full, you know, rows of students. And the professor, a very august professor of Old Testament, had flown in from California. And the first thing he did, he said, you know, I always believe the classrooms are a community. And so let's go around the room and state your name and what you do for a living. <laughs> and people going down the row, it got to me. I said, hi, my name is Steve Lobby and I'm unencumbered by employment. <laughs> At the break, I went to my car and never went back to that class. I was so thoroughly humiliated because I had my identity wrapped up in what I did as a profession, not in who I was in Christ. That lesson was one that I have never forgotten. So as everyone, you know, you want to hand me an award, thank you very much. I, it's not me. It can't be, because if it is, I am going to let the Dagon, God of pride, morph yet again in another form or fashion and then it becomes about me. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. He mocks proud mockers but gives grace to the humble. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. And the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom and humility comes before honor. And in case that sounds familiar, that's Psalm 25.9, Proverbs 3.34, Proverbs 11.12, and Proverbs 15.33.
Only the humble can wait with grace. The humble do not put any demands on God. Which brings us to the third part, the object. What are you waiting for? Now, I call this, or at least I ask the question, if there is an object of our waiting or a purpose, because we will ask the question, why can't I have it now? But what's it? And what if you don't know what it is? Then you're really lost. We just feel dissatisfied. We've talked about the agony of waiting, that acute sort of waiting. We've talked about the futility of relying on ourselves. But here I want to add the gift of waiting. The gift of anticipation. Shouldn't the anticipation of God's answer be enough to sustain us? I mean, I thought God was supposed to be enough. So I truly wonder if God's gift in waiting is the gift of anticipation. Let me explain that a little bit or illustrate it. In music, it is that moment that has been called the pre-symphonic hush. So if you ever go to a symphony, there you have the bass, you know, the, the, the standard uh, setup. You know, the conductor isn't out there yet. The first violinist walks out, everybody applauds. They sit down, everybody does a little, you know, here, here, and it's all kind of noise and cacophony. It settles down, and then the conductor comes out and shakes the hand of the violinist stands up on his podium and raises his arm or his baton. At that moment, the entire room is dead silent. All the musicians are poised. Everyone is waiting with anticipation for the gift of music and the downbeat happens and the gift is given. But in that moment, there is a gift of anticipation. Do we approach God that way? Well, we just wait until the music starts and then we praise Him. But there's a step before that. It also happens in nature. And I describe this, I may have done it a couple times in our class as an illustration of, of, of waiting. But when I was in high school in, uh, in Hawaii, yes, we were suffering terribly in Honolulu. Uh, <clears throat> but my dad liked to get up at oh dark 30 and take us to watch sunrises. And we did it when I was a little kid at the Grand Canyon and that was just horrible. Um, imagine doing that to a teenager on the Big Island. We drive up the Mount, uh, Mount Mauna Kea, which is the tallest mountain in, on the Big Island, and it's pitch black. And I mean, I'm a teenager and I am not a happy person. 
And I am verbally letting my mom and dad know how unhappy I was of having to do this stupid exercise. So we get to the very top, <clears throat> and it's still pitch dark. <coughs> Excuse me. And you can watch the glow of the sunrise. You can't see anything yet, but it's a glow. And what struck me is how nature went silent. The night creatures stopped talking. The morning creatures weren't ready yet because the sun wasn't up. And it went deathly silent in anticipation of the cresting of that sun. And that light began to paint the mountains with vivid colors that were completely absent just seconds before. And then it's not a slow paint. The first brushes are slow, but then it just races down the valley and the animals wake up. And suddenly you hear the birds chirping and all this stuff going on. Again, that moment before anticipating creation and glory and beauty. Do we do that? Or do we wait for the sun to get up before we start anticipating it? I've jokingly said that there's a third way of the gift of anticipation and that's with a family where there's the nine month marathon before birth and then the 18 years of waiting until they leave. <laughs> until they do. Amid, I, I say avoid <clears throat> the idea of following your heart because you hear that every once in a while. Oh, when it comes to waiting on, you know, what to do next, just follow your heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Instead, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So, let's correct the grammar. really the true question here is the object. What's the what are we waiting? The object of our desire becomes God. That's why it's called waiting on God. In anticipation of this gift beyond measure. Psalm 40 verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord and He turned to me and heard my cry for help. In the Hebrew, the waited patiently is a verb meaning an active sort of waiting, not a navel-gazing 
meditative. It is a movement. The best metaphor I could come up with this is was trying to picture the baby bird in the nest with its mouth wide open in anticipation of being fed. Actively cheeping, actively saying, actively praying that the bird would come, the mom would come and feed them. Here's a principle that sometimes hard to hear, but I, I would say you may agree with this. You will never stop waiting in this life. Never. It should be a spiritual discipline in learning anticipation, in learning the lack of self-reliance, in learning that it can be very acute and painful. But we're asked to do this, to wait on God. Verse 2 of Psalm 40 is interesting. So the first one was, I wait patiently for the Lord, and He turned to me and heard my cry for help. Verse 2, He brought me up from the desolate pit, out of the muddy clay, set my feet on a rock, and made my steps secure. Well, that made me think of quicksand. You know, the muddy clay. Now, quicksand, if you ever do any study on it, it's not what you see in the movies, where it's just some soup where you step in it and you oh! No, it's not like that. It's more like drying cement. You can get stuck. In fact, Encyclopedia Britannica says, the force required to extract your feet from quicksand at a rate of one centimeter per second is equivalent to the force needed to lift a medium-sized car. So this is why if someone is in quicksand, they're not going to sink until you know, their head disappears. They're stuck. And people have to pull them out with much force, or you have to pull yourself out somehow. God brought us up from the desolate pit out of that muddy clay in His power. And He put a rock under our feet. I heard the metaphor once saying, the thing about quicksand is there's a bottom. You might think you're sinking in quicksand in life and that it's, there's never any hope and it's just going to get worse and worse and you're worse. You might go, yeah, but at some point you will hit bottom. And there's only one other direction after you hit bottom, it's back up. Notice that it did not say, I wanted patiently for the Lord. We don't want all we want. But you wait. And that is the appropriate way of waiting. One of the best books on waiting on God is this little guy from Andrew Murray. Oh, waiting on God, written a hundred years ago. He's got this little phrase. Most people forget that Andrew Murray was from South Africa and uh, was an incredible, incredible writer and minister. This brings us to think about who we are waiting on. <clears throat> not an idol, not a God we have conjured up by our poor concept of who he is, 
Let us acknowledge Him as the living God in His great glory, infinite holiness, power, wisdom, goodness, and love. Let us be still and worship until we know He is near and then say, It is on you that I wait. Waiting requires time and patience. There is no quick way to wait on God. It implies sacrifice and separation. A soul entirely given up to God to wait expectantly with genuine faith, in genuine faith and not to dictate what he will do or say. It is our privilege and our joy to be in his presence. He will be changed even if we had not uttered one word of supplication. So I repeat the verse I started the talk with. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26. Written while Jeremiah was standing on a hill watching his city burn. All of his dreams of Judah's redemption was on fire. His 50 years of ministry had one convert, his secretary, Barak. Remember, he took his writing to the king and the king, as he read each page, as was being read, took a knife, slid off the, uh, the scroll and put it in the fire. Every single word, handwritten. It was not saved on a floppy disk. So he had to write the book of Jeremiah again. Every word. End of his ministry, he's standing there in hell watching it burn, and he writes, The Lord is good. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. And the soul that seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for giving us this unscheduled time to reflect on a topic that would normally not have been presented here this morning and maybe it's a message for me maybe it's a message for one of those who are here or for someone who may hear it later but Lord you're in this and we wait for you we don't wait for an answer we don't dictate an answer we don't pray that it happens exactly how we want it. We wait on you in quiet, in patience, because you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.